after about 1650, even New England, only about one third of all adults ever belonged to a church. And I know the rate was lower in the middle and southern colonies. And on the eve of the American Revolution, he says there were only 15% of all colonists belonged to any church. And we have records going back to 1687 of a governor of New York who's complaining that the settlers just weren't interested in getting into the pews. And they were, they were wild about unorthodox religions. And they were not very interested in, in the traditions and the institutions that the, the governor wanted them to be involved with. So this is a very different picture from what we've been raised to believe about America, that everybody was in church and everybody was Christian. And even Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author Ronnie Pontiac to talk about his book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. Ronnie explains how the American religious tradition is quite different than what most of us think. He discusses forgotten figures from America's spiritual history, the connections between spiritualism and the abolitionist and feminist movements, and how the United States is an alchemical crucible of reinvention and rebirth. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Greetings, everyone. Uh, all apologies for the interruption before beginning the episode with Ronnie Pontiac, but I wanted to let you know about a special Rebel Spirit Radio live stream event. This will be occurring on Saturday, April 8th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. So that's noon mountain, 1 p.m. Central and 2 p.m. Eastern time. Yeah, there. I think I got it. Uh, this will be the very first Rebel Spirit Radio cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. Yes, I know it's a little bit early, but it is happy hour in France. Uh, I will be joined by a very special guest, my good friend and fellow religious studies graduate student, Stephanie Bidet, and we will be talking all things apocalypse as appropriate. Uh, this should be fun and educational, and as Steph likes to say, apocalyptic. Uh, again, that will be Saturday, April 8th, 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, we'd love to have you join us, and we hope to be taking uh, questions from the audience as well. And now, on to Ronnie Pontiac and our discussion about his remarkable book, American Metaphysical Religion. Ronnie Pontiac worked as Manley P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He has produced award-winning documentaries and has written for Invisible College Magazine, Newtopia, Metapsychosis, A Cult of Personality, and The Original Reality Sandwich. He joins me today to discuss his book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. Ronnie. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I am very happy to have you as a guest, and I have been looking forward to this ever since I got the review copy of your book, and I loved your book. Oh, thank um, you. You know, I don't want to be insincere. You know, I generally enjoy what I read, but I really like this book. This is this is in my wheelhouse. So, I, you know, I've got a bit of a background in the American religious tradition, 
And through that study, I've seen like little bits of what you write about, but you really unpack a lot. And I think it's very valuable information for the American spiritual experience. So I'm so excited about talking with you about this book. Thank you. So you titled the introduction, A Heritage We Didn't Know We Had. And I found that really intriguing because it does seem to be a heritage. And the heritage is this American metaphysical religion, what you're calling the American metaphysical religion. So the first question really is, what is this? What is this heritage? What is the American metaphysical religion? The the actual phrase is now a field of study in academia that's relatively new. And as you probably know, esoteric studies in academia were a stepchild for most of the history of academia in the West. And it was only really, there were slight signs of evolution in the 80s when, for instance, Harold Bloom's book, An American Religion, came out, which was really one of the first major works to present the idea that there is such a thing as an American religion. And in fact, he examined Christianity and thought that American Christianity was something quite different from the history of Christianity. And at one time, he called it American Orphism. Mm -hmm. He actually gave the name California Orphism to the New Age movement. He felt that American spirituality was, was steeped in Gnostic and Persian feelings about religion and ideas. And a little bit later, another watershed book was by Catherine Albanese, a wonderful scholar who published a book called Republic of Mind and Spirit. And this was really the, the opening salvo in the field of study of American metaphysical religion as she not only looked at the tradition in America, but she also drew a, a history of, of European Hermeticism and its influence in America that people who read authors like Manley Hall or, or for that matter, Levi or Alexander Wilder will find similar narratives, people who put together this tradition that goes way back and then they show how it, it evolved in America. But this was the first really, really excellent academic study on this subject and, and proved that there was something here. Now that ignited a debate in academia because there are many people who believe that it's nothing more than an umbrella phrase for a set of superstitions and beliefs that really don't have that much to do with each other. And they all get swept into this particular dustbin of, of a kind of experimental religion, if you will. And, and that is part of the reason why it received so little attention because back in the day, in the 20th century, for example, in the, in the mid-century period, it was considered somewhat radical to study Pentecostals and non-institutional Christian organizations, let alone looking at, at these, these smaller movements that seem to exist on the fringe. Those weren't, weren't acceptable at all. With, with Albanese's work, this turned into a legitimate field of study. And since then, there's been an explosion of work in academia, both books and essays of various types that have shed light on parts of this story that have never been available before. And just before my book came out, actually, I believe in January, Catherine Albanese's new book came out, 
which is about the pursuit of happiness and its impact on Anglo-American metaphysical religion. And if I understand correctly, she posits the idea that America has changed the nature of religion because whereas monotheism, all the patriarchal monotheistic religions have at best an ambivalent relationship with the material world and with nature, that in America, the pursuit of happiness became essentially a religious pursuit mm. and that it transformed all aspects of American religion. So in America, the Christianity that had once been very fatalistic and convinced of damnation for most people, viewing the world as a threatening, dangerous place, a place where people or souls can become damned, changed into this idea that nature and God want you to be happy and the, the whole prosperity gospel kind of grew out of this. And, and this also obviously influences esoteric religion. And that's not to say that there haven't always been aspects of Christianity and esoteric religion that had that idea that by bringing ourselves into harmony with the divine and with nature, we can live better lives. That certainly goes all the way back uh, to the Egyptians and, and certainly uh, Pythagoras and Plato had, had intimations of those kinds of ideas. But here in America, it's become really the predominant idea of how spirituality should be experienced. So in the esoteric world, you have ceremonial magicians or chaos magicians who are doing rituals to accomplish goals to their own ends. In other words, to achieve happiness of some kind. And you also have people who are trying to use the techniques of, of new thought to manifest the things that they want by, by seeding their unconscious with suggestions that will later manifest in this kind of dance between the, the human creativity and, and the world of nature. And so is it really something? I mean, it, there are people who argue that that this is a religion, that it, it is, in a sense, a religion without self-awareness. Hmm. And so we have all these people spread out, and we may be doing different things to some degree. We may be using different kinds of astrology. We may be using different kinds of omens. We may be using different words to signify important concepts on our path. But if you examine them, it appears that, that they have a lot in common. And when you take up numbers like how many people believe in reincarnation or how many people believe in astrology or those kind of things, you see that it's millions of people. And so it's tempting to look at it and wonder if someday it's going to actually mature into a quintessential American religion that becomes institutionalized. And we've seen in history the way that for example, I often use these two examples, the way that when the Aryans came down into India over the centuries, they adopted much of the religion and aesthetics of the conquered people. And the same thing appears to have happened when Rome conquered Greece and Greek culture became a driving force in Roman culture. And so we look at indigenous American culture and all the various forms of esotericism that made it here. And we wonder, is it possible that, that there will be a new religion, perhaps based on the indigenous idea of respect for nature and harmony with nature, something which, which was also understood to a degree by, by people like Paracelsus and others who, who preached about the wisdom of nature. And we, we remember that in the beginning, 
scientists were called natural philosophers. They were philosophizing about nature. And so there was this idea that nature could reveal her secrets and those secrets could lead to helping a lump of lead quickly, more quickly than, than would otherwise happen, evolve into a chunk of gold or finding a cure for any ailment. And so this, this, this preoccupation of, of pursuit of happiness and, and the realms of health and wealth and, and all the other forms of well-being seems to be a preoccupation of American metaphysical religion. So I don't really take a position as to whether this thing is already something or if it's going to be something or if it is simply a, a bunch of disconnected uh, practices and beliefs. But I will say that I do think that the, the point of view of academia in the mid-century was you know they were very nervous about it they felt that they called it Sheilaism. they mm, often yeah. used the term bricolage and mm. so they felt that people were just going out there and picking up pieces of whatever they wanted and calling this a religion was a great fallacy and in the end not only would they be betrayed by the lack of a real path but they would also be a curse on our society because they would not have the sense of community that churches provide now, I would argue that that even within the churches, even within such a well-established church as the Catholic Church, bricolage is going on. People are taking from the Catholic Church as Catholics what speaks to them, and people take very different things from the Catholic Church. And so I think that applying that only to esotericism is a little bit oversimplified. And also, now that we've had more time to observe how this is evolving, since the 1950s, we can see, I know people, perhaps you do, who, who have performed what was dismissed as bricolage, and they have found a real path. They found community, they have, have developed very interesting and for them functional approaches to soul development. And from that point of view, it seems to me that, that there is something happening in terms of what we're, we're using this label, American metaphysical religion, that is something more than just Sheilaism. Right. Yeah. I always liked that term, Sheilaism. I think that came from Robert Bella, the sociologist yes. of religion. Yeah. I um, love that the, the woman who was who was nicknamed Sheila for the study, that her approach when when she was told this doesn't work, what you know, what you're doing doesn't make sense. She just said it works for me. Yeah. 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 That's so perfect. And you know, I wonder, and this is a little bit of a deviation from uh, what's in your book. So we'll get back to the book. Okay. Uh, but it occurs to me that one of the most profound changes in regards to developing community for this American metaphysical religion and changes to, you know, this bricolage that you're describing has been the advent of the internet. Because Bella and a lot of these other scholars writing in the mid 20th century, they were writing before the internet allowed you to, or allowed a person to find different communities and different avenues of thought. And, Very true. You know, with, you know, love it or hate it, you know, Amazon <laughs> has allowed people to get access to books that they normally wouldn't have had access Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And I, I want to tell a story about that. This book could not have been written, really, if it weren't for the way that Amazon used to be. 
which was for a long time there, you could search the entirety of any book on Amazon. Hmm. And the same, of course, is true to some degree with Google Books. It used to be much more searchable than it is now. But in those days, I was able to get access to some of the most amazing academic studies associated to all these topics just by looking up what I needed to see in Amazon, hmm. on Amazon. So that that changed, I think, the whole realm of scholarship at the time because it would have required so much energy to to access all of those books but i was able to do so in the comfort of my own home and i was able to find the most obscure references and, and works that that were ancient and the most modern these days they control how much you're able to see but that was invaluable for the creation of this book because i could not have afforded all the books you know as you know academic books are so expensive and then certainly social media and the internet in general has completely changed the the whole game in terms of finding spiritual paths not only do you have groups and other access points to individuals who may be involved in similar projects but you also have the sort of a menu if you will you can you have the whole history of the world of spirituality from every culture available to you on the internet if you're good with search engines and so this is a real game changer when you, for instance, one of the people that I talked to in writing this book was the, the tarot scholar and author of a wonderful book about the women of the Golden Dawn, Mary Kay Greer, who told me that when she was a student in Florida in the early 60s, it was almost impossible for her to find a tarot deck. It was only because there was a small metaphysical bookstore in the seedier side of town that she was able to locate one. Today, there are so many, I, I talked to Adam McLean, who is an expert on alchemy and on tarot and a publisher and writer on these subjects. And I asked him because he's the foremost authority, how many decks are out there now? And he said that he couldn't keep up with them. He had to stop counting and they were in the thousands wow. with so many coming out all the time that the number is exponentially growing. It's become, a form of art medium, the form of political medium. And so it's it's blossomed into directions that no one ever would have imagined even a hundred years ago. So this changes the, the, the whole game. And then of course we see how on TikTok and on Instagram, we see young students of these matters who in the past would be subject to schools or to books. So so a certain lineage of books might be where they get their information or they would they would pretty much have to join some kind of an organization in the way that I became involved in the Philosophical Research Society. And now they don't have to do that. They can access everything that we were able to access and they seem to be getting great joy in just sharing the information and teaching each other, much to the chagrin of elders who, who felt that they should be in charge of this process. And I find it exciting and, and quite a positive development. So yes, I think we're in a completely different game than we've ever been in. Yeah. And I know that the fastest growing, I don't want to call it denomination. I'll say a demographic, I suppose, uh, a religious or spiritual demographic in the United States right now are people who identify as spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. And it seems that that connects directly to this American metaphysical religion that you write about. Yes. 
I think so. And it's also interesting that there's a quote by John Butler, who wrote a book in 1979, where he examined what the actual Christian uh, participation was among the colonists. Mm -hmm. And the, the quote goes something like, American colonists had an ambivalent relationship with Christian congregations. After about 1650, even New England, only about one third of all adults ever belonged to a church. And I know the rate was lower in the middle and southern colonies. And on the eve of the American Revolution, he says there were only 15% of all colonists belonged to any church. And we have records going back to 1687 of a governor of New York who's complaining that the settlers just weren't interested in getting into the pews and they were they were wild about unorthodox religions and they were not very interested in in the traditions and the institutions that the the governor wanted them to be involved with so this is a very different picture from what we've been raised to believe about america that everybody was in church and everybody was christian and even amongst the pilgrims i write about how John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, and really one of the driving forces of, of the pilgrim colonization in America, that his son, John Winthrop the Younger, was an avid alchemist, a great enthusiast of the Rosicrucians. He traveled to Europe to try to find Rosicrucians, and when he failed to do so, he applied their principles in his life. And when he moved to America following his father here, he had crates full of of library books, many of which had belonged and manuscripts that had belonged to John D. And he marked his crates, those and the ones with the alchemical equipment with D's Monus Hieroglyphica. That's that's like putting a pentagram on something when your dad is, is a, a pastor. Hmm. And that wasn't considered rebellious or strange. So the pilgrims were much more complex hmm. than, than we're led to believe. And so we, we find for instance, Cotton Mather, who, while he was known best known at this point for contributing somewhat to the Salem witch trials, this was a man who was also deeply interested in alchemy, who claimed that an, there was an apparition of an angel in his room, and certainly that had something to do with John Dee, and who referred to John Winthrop the Younger when he died as, as being Hermes Christianus. Mm. I mean, what kind of phrase is that for an upstanding Christian? Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Cotton Mather. He is one of my direct uh, ancestors, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. He yeah, he would have been like cousin. I call him cousin Cotton. Um, <laughs> yeah, the family patriarch is Richard Mather, and Cotton's father was Richard's son, Increase, and my family traces its connection to Richard through his other son, Timothy, That's so uh, cool. who was the only Mather boy not to pursue a career in the ministry. Wow. Uh, he was known as the farmer Mather. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Yeah. But yeah, I, and I love where you, you wrote that Cotton Mather was a complicated man. And my, my immediate response was, and how? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I but I also appreciate what you just said, especially in this kind of deconstruction of this myth of 
a Christian America. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I found a very similar statistic. I think it was off by like just one point where what I found was that at the time of the revolution, it was like about 17% mm -hmm. of people identified or colonists identified with the church. And my understanding is that stayed fairly consistent until the just right before the civil war. Right. You know, and so there's something else going on. And I think that's one of the reasons why I loved your book so much is because you're like, yeah, there was something else going on. Yeah. Uh, it was astonishing how much was going on. Right, right. Yeah. I was astonished by it as well. Especially, you know, you just mentioned, you know, John Withrop's son who had the interest in Rosicrucianism and alchemy. And there were others that you noted mm -hmm. that also had an interest in uh, al alchemy. Uh, I'm trying to find in my notes here. I've got the name written down, but it was someone that you noted, Tom, I wanted to say. Yeah, I think Thomas Harriet, perhaps. Yes. That you said probably, set, yeah. set up the very first alchemical laboratory. Yes. He was sent out here by Walter Raleigh as part of the, the colony that they were going to set up. And he's a fascinating person. He's a really brilliant scientist. And although he was interested in alchemy, he was also interested in astronomy. Mm -hmm. And he was a, a really a polyglot. So for example, when he was in America, he was fascinated by the indigenous people that he came into contact with. And he wanted to know about their religions and he wanted to understand their language. So when he realized that, that English would not be able to capture these languages, he decided to invent a new alphabet. Hmm. And he did so. And with that alphabet, he captured what he could of, of language in the New England area. And then he wanted to apply this alphabet to the idea that maybe it could be used as an alphabet for every language. So we might still be stuck with having to speak different languages, but how much easier would it be if we were all using the same alphabet for those languages? It was certainly an impractical idea, but he labored on it. And then it's very ironic to me that he wound up being considered a Satanist. Hmm. And this was partly because he was involved with Raleigh and there were reports when, when King James went after Raleigh, after King James was almost assassinated in a plot that Raleigh was involved in, there were reports that, that Raleigh had said at dinner that, that he didn't think that the miracles of Moses and Jesus were all that impressive, that Thomas Hariot could do better. And then they talked about how they were drawing tobacco using Bible sheets of paper from the Bible and these kind of things, which were terrible sins at that time in the eyes of the authorities and only Satanists would do something like that. And science, of course, in itself is very suspicious. For a while, he was under the protection of a, a, an Earl that had the nickname the Wizard Earl, who was a friend of King James and was fascinated with esoteric things. And he brought Harriot to live with him when they put Raleigh into the tower. And he invented for the wizard Earl, a whole new approach to plumbing that revolutionized plumbing and figured out some of the mathematics of how water moves through plumbing that changed some of the mathematics associated with the dynamics of, of hydro force that would later read, lead to hydroelectricity. And he also redesigned the navigational tools and the strategy of navigation for 
the British, and he's credited with turning them from a rather feckless small fleet into the most feared corsairs on the Atlantic because of, of these inventions. And he was the first in, in England to work with a telescope. And I believe he was the first to map out the moon, what he could see of it. And he also invented some of the very first binary number mathematics that would later lead to computer science. So this was a, a really amazing person. I compare him, I say that he's, it's almost like taking a, a guy from, from Silicon Valley and dropping him into uh, the, the England of James. And he was, he was very out of place and very misunderstood, unfortunately. But he was certainly, we have, they've actually found remnants of this lab that he had on a beach where they near the colony and they, they have found bits of alchemical alembics and materials from alchemical experiments there. So he was almost certainly the first alchemist and very probably the first scientist in America. He, he wrote a book describing what he saw here of what, of what he saw. He didn't see that much. It's a rather melancholy book, I think, because although he describes the beauties of the place, he is really doing a business plan and he is presenting to Europe and especially to England, obviously, the idea that there is great money to be made from exploiting the natural resources in America. And there's this phrase that he uses, we took it and we ate it, mm. about almost any kind of animal you can imagine. It, it was shocking. I mean, they, they ate everything. And, and it's so symbolic of the corporate industrialized culture that would eventually take over. And I think of it as really the first sign of that. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that I noted here as well in relation to this myth of America being a Christian nation. And it's that I think we like to think that, you know, it was settled by the pilgrims and the Puritans, but that's not really true. It really was kind of settled by corporations, you know, the Plymouth Company, the London mm -hmm. Company, and the emphasis for them wasn't religious freedom, but it was rather trade. It was right. the natural resources, you know, timber, fish, fur. And so I've always kind of thought that the United States has always been more corporate and capitalist than Christian. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And that's why it was so easy. I mean, I use the example of, um, it's just actually a different book that I'm, I just <laughs> finished, that I just sold about Rosicrucian origins and context. And one of the people that I write about is Rupert, Prince Rupert, known as Rupert of the Rhine. Hmm. And this was the son of Frederick and Elizabeth, who were the royal couple at the heart of the whole Rosicrucian fervor. And Rupert was a famous royalist. He was an artist. He was an inventor. He was a brilliant soldier. He became a real pirate. And to his absolute shame, he was also a driving force and founding member and the guy who actually went to the place to make it happen of the Royal African Company. So he was very involved in, in beginning the slave trade, which the pilgrims were more than happy to become involved with with their tobacco. And it's what made them rich and really, really allowed them to flourish in America. 
And then Rupert winds up coming to Canada, and that's why we have areas of Canada that are named Prince Rupert. So we see here, he wasn't really a Rosicrucian, but he was somebody who was deeply steeped in the esoteric ideas of the time. He was an avid alchemist, but he didn't have any compunction at all about trying to profit from human beings, trafficking human beings. And the pilgrims also had no problem with that. So if you look at, at their religious beliefs in the actual Bible, you realize that what, they're not being driven by religious impulse. They are being driven by, by business and by the desire to profit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, part of my family heritage. I'm always doing ancestral work mm -hmm. um, because it was Richard Mather who apparently converted the first African slave to Christianity. Wow. And that brought up this huge controversy as whether you could own a Christian as a slave. Right. And it was Cotton Mather who settled it. And he's like, yep, nope, it's fine. It's going to pacify them. They're going to be less likely to run away and slice your throat in the middle of the night. So convert right. away. And you've got uh, slaves in the Bible. So it's yeah. very convenient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I know that, and I think you mentioned this a couple of times that the Puritans didn't really take care of their poor. And I think that fed into a lot of their theology that if you were wealthy, that that was a sign that you were given God's grace. Mm -hmm. You know, and poorness was a moral failing, I think. Yes. And you have the, it, it's so convenient because you're saving souls. So you find an African and, and you, you, you're not removing this person from their own heritage and their own family. You're saving their soul. Mm. Same thing with the indigenous people. We're decimating right. them, but we're saving their souls. Right. It was a really strange kind of concept they had going there that allowed them to do a lot of damage. And I write about a character named Tom Morton, mm -hmm. who is one of my favorite American, kind of lost Americans. I think of him as a, a founding father who slipped out of the historical narrative in a way, who represents a real alternative America. And this was a guy who he was sent out here for business to explore opportunities for investment when he was about 50 years old, across the Atlantic, and he opened up a trading post that he named Marymount. And this guy was very different from the pilgrims. This was a guy who grew up during the Elizabethan era, he had, had attended Shakespearean plays as a child. He, had, he was in, in fear of the Armada from Spain. And he, he loved Falstaff. He was funny. He liked to drink. He loved poetry. He had memorized all sorts of poems. He called it Merrimont because it had a lot of puns in it. So it was, on one level, it was the Mountain of Mary, but it was also a Mary Mount, which was English slang at the time for intercourse. And there was also a pun in there from Latin having to do with the male genitalia. He was that kind of guy. And mm -hmm. he, he published the first fart joke in American history <laughs> and taking advantage of the way the F looked like an S. Mm. And, and he came up with all kinds of names for the pilgrims. He called one of them Captain Shrimp. <laughs> and he, he really didn't think much of them. And his trading post flourished. It didn't require any walls like pilgrim settlements did. They were living in peace with the indigenous people. He got into trouble because he started selling guns to indigenous tribes that had been decimated by disease and who were suffering attacks from predatory tribes who wanted their territory and their women and children. 
so that the pilgrims felt that these guns would wind up being used against them and that he was preparing for some kind of a war against them i don't really think that was his purpose at all he was very interested in in indigenous culture and how they lived their families and he noticed that he's thought in many ways that they like like roger williams he thought that the there were some superior aspects to indigenous culture he pointed out that they didn't have to to acquire and then defend a bunch of material objects that they they shared things that they they respected their elders more than europeans they were more tender with their children they they had a more even their agriculture was superior and and they were healthier and had stronger senses they were always marveling at how far they could see and and so he actually pondered the idea that maybe that we could learn from them, which was very radical at the time. And the pilgrims made war on him, essentially. They, he was the first American to ever get pulled into court for having a wild party. <laughs> and he was also the first American who was ever foreclosed on. Hmm. And these were things that they tried to do to, to stop him. He, he eventually had a celebration he celebrated may day and they stripped a yellow pine and they it, it he describes it as glowing like gold it was beautiful and they put ribbons all over it they put it on this low green hill that was overlooking the atlantic that was covered with long grass it was a very picturesque scene and they invited everyone pirates trappers indigenous tribes outlaws everybody was welcome as long as that they behaved all right with each other and they had these this great party where everybody got along and it, the pilgrims tried to say that it was a drunken affair where everybody was fornicating it really wasn't like that morton reported that the native women were more moral in many ways even though some tribes allowed premarital sex or extramarital sex but he said that indigenous women were more moral than english women and so these were actually rather wholesome events of culture sharing and it represents a vision of america that is quite different from the pilgrims and it deeply frightened the pilgrims they, they saw something happening there that they had to stop so this this was a battle that was fought in the courts and they did very cruel things to him they they starved him when they had him in their jail they put him, stranded him on an island with hardly any provisions, again, trying to starve him. And then finally, they threw him on a boat with, with no supplies that took the long way back, hoping that he wouldn't make it, because at that point, he was already getting elderly. And he did make it back to England. For He prevailed a very, very short time, but the pilgrims absolutely won that battle. And most of his followers wound up serving the pilgrims. And he reports that they were very cruel to their poor, that when he was their prisoner in winter, they they asked him to hunt because they couldn't get food. And he was a good hunter. And they told him how much to get. And he offered to get more so that the poor could eat and they forbade it. Mm. Very strange. And he he kind of laughed at them. He he said they've been living in the wilderness. They're afraid of the wilderness. And they're surrounded by food. All they would have to do is go out and forage or hunt, but they didn't even know how to do that. And he even pointed out that he tried to teach them how to use lime in order to make the, the structures that they were building able to withstand 
strong reign. And because they didn't like him and they held him in contempt, they refused to do it. And so every winter, their structures would be melted by, by downpours, which the indigenous tribes found kind of funny. And they found it hilarious <laughs> when Merrimont was burned down right before an extremely cold winter. They just thought white people were nuts. Yeah. Yeah, well, white people are kind of nuts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't make much of it, but, you know, I've thought about that before. I'm like, what, what in the world's going on? And you mentioned an idea from the indigenous cultures of Watiko. And I've had a guest on who has written extensively on Watiko. And I think that that's probably one of the best answers. And you wrote that you defined it as, the consuming of another's life for one's own private purpose or profit. It is, mm -hmm. and I note it's the disease of consumption. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, I still want to know where it comes from, though. <laughs> I really right. want to know sort of the origin of that. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a good question. Yeah, where did that disease come from? Mm -hmm. So, um, you've mentioned alchemy a few times and in kind of in connection to this, I'm at least going to try to make the connection here. I think you note that America itself could be considered an alchemical experiment. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. And I, I think, I hope I'm not wrong in this, but I think it connects to this really core idea of the American experiment of self-reinvention as rebirth. Yes, absolutely. The country starts with, with on, on some level, even within the corporations, many of the corporations that are coming here are connected to Masonic and Rosicrucian elements. And there is a definite, after the, the defeat at White Mountain and the defeat of, of Frederick of Bohemia and the whole concept that there could be a Protestant Holy Roman Emperor, the attention definitely turned to America and what might be done there away from the Pope and the Habsburgs. And so even the people that were coming here to establish businesses and to exploit the country were still coming here to get away from the culture that they had been born into. And then, of course, there were many people who came here simply to get away. So for example, when you see Kelpius leaving Germany with his group of German mystics and settling in the Pennsylvania wilderness and starting uh, Woman of the Wilderness, and then later when Ephrata developed out of that, these are people who are definitely leaving a culture in order to be able to be completely free to practice as they wish. And one of the features of America was that that when you got tired of where you were in America, because maybe the church was too strong or your ideas didn't fit in, you would just move to the wilderness. Hmm. And there was so much wilderness to move into. So I talk about, for example, how in Appalachia, the, the, the people that moved there, they wanted to be away from churches and government. They had their own, what, what was called by other superstitions, but was their belief system. And they moved as far as they had to get to get away from people who are going to try to force them to behave otherwise. So there's a there's a, a history in America of this this movement westward or into the wilderness in an effort to be able to to practice as we wish. And of course, the, the Mormon religion is a, is a great example of that. And so 
I think that that spirit of inventing religion, I actually had a podcast interview with a podcaster in Europe the other day. And one of the questions was, how come America is always giving birth to all these religions? <laughs> that doesn't really happen anywhere else. Hmm. And I think that that's part of the reason why, because this is a place where people came to do just that. The other thing I think is that because of the nature of the people who came here, so many of them were open-minded about, well, what are the Caribbean African enslaved people bringing with them? What are the indigenous people believing? And if you had a, a, the cunning folk, for example, who are the, the holders of all the knowledge of dowsing and herbal healing and things that, that are sort of associated with witchcraft, but was acceptable, they were fascinated by what other traditions were available in America and comparing and taking what they, they found interesting. And so there was this constant pro, uh, uh, progress of mutation as Americans found other belief systems to reflect back on their own. And I think that also helped this idea of, of creation because it's a, it really brought to mind the, the reality of relativism in religion mm -hmm. and the, the idea that while the pilgrims may have thought, well, everybody involved in an indigenous tribe, whatever they're doing, it's satanic. And if their shamans are doing things that, that, that are real, and there were reports of that, many of them, well, that's just because Satan is doing that for them. But there were other Americans who we may not even know about, but trappers and uh, there were even, I had to tell a story of a guy that was traveling the world as a teacher of Kabbalah, going to all sorts of outrageous places, including the American colonies. And he wound up teaching a future president of Yale University, the Kabbalah. And that guy wanted to make Kabbalah one of the things to be studied in all colleges in America. So I think that the, the combination of fleeing uh, conformist cultures but at the same time, running into so many other cultures and finding people that are willing to share information about their beliefs and practices has made it easier for Americans to invent and reinvent. And so Emerson, of course, becomes the penultimate example of that when he says in so many words, listen, why do we have to only see God through the eyes of people who lived thousands of years ago why can't we have a direct relationship right now? Well, that's quintessentially American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that 100%. And I think that, you know, I've often said, and this is in connection to what you were just saying, that the Protestant Reformation, even though it began in Germany and there are pockets of it in Europe, it really reached its sort of full flowering in the colonies in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that we tend to forget is how close in time the Renaissance was with the founding of the colonies. Mm -hmm. And with the Renaissance, you also had that sort of explosion. I don't know if it's right to call it an explosion, but of hermetic thought and yes. Kabbalah and whatnot. And it makes total sense that that would make its way to the colonies. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's funny because you see the, the way that the Rosicrucian movement comes up. And, and in my book, I, I see it as a, it's almost a, it's comparable in some ways to the beats or the hippie movement in that it's a movement driven by youth, but also by mentors who are all reading 
the same esoteric fringe materials and stuff like Agrippa or Campanella and Bocciolini and Bruno and and they at first don't really know that they are a something. They I think when the manifesto was written, it was more a combination of politics and and travelogue and and a a screed against the Pope and and sort of a desire to promote natural philosophy. And I don't think the people or person who wrote it expected the response they got. And one of the responses was that there was a sense of, of I see this as you're in your little corner of, of Europe reading Agrippa quietly, and you don't want to let anybody know about that because that is forbidden. And suddenly this book comes out filled with the ideas that you have been filling yourself with, and you realize you're not alone. And when all these hundreds and hundreds of Rosicrucian pamphlets and books were published so quickly after the manifestos, it's, it's a coming to awakening of, a, of an underground group that has been there for some time and did not realize that it was, it was something. Again, it's like a movement that had no self-awareness that suddenly became self-aware. Now, unfortunately, its political goals were, were smashed and it also created the wrong kind of response. So whoever was behind it was disillusioned by it. They were trying to get people to be inspired and to apply the principles of the universal reformation in their own corner of the world. And instead, people were publishing books saying, me, me, I should be an initiate <laughs> in the Rosicrucian order. Or they were just attacking it as they used to call them the devil's Jesuits and things mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> It was, it was a terribly disappointing thing, I think, because the idea was that that people were supposed to say, yes, this is this is a brighter future. And so I think they were trying to convince Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, that he should become a kind of hermetic philosopher king. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Those yeah. ideas then transferred themselves to America. Mm. And many who fled the Thirty Years' War brought with them these Rosicrucian ideals and, and concepts. And so Kelpius is actually bringing ideas from Germany. He's bringing the ideas of Bamey's theosophy and Paracelsian concepts, and he's, he's bringing German pietism, as well as the Rosicrucian stuff and, and hints of the Kabbalah. And, and then you've got somebody like John Winthrop the Younger, who can't find any Rosicrucians and who decides, well, then I'm going to live my life as much like a Rosicrucian as I can. And I would argue that in a sense that makes him a Rosicrucian. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And the Rosicrucian order that, and I think the full name is the ancient and mystical order of the Rose Cross. Yes. Um, that was founded by someone who was born in New Jersey, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's there's so many Rosicrucian orders. It's, right. It seems that in its origins, it was more of a of a well, you know, Johann Valentin Andre, who was probably the the author of at least one of the manifestos, but possibly all three of them. He referred to it as a ludibrium, a joke, mm -hmm. a lampoon, if you will. And I don't think that was entirely what it was. And certainly he wrote that at a time when he was embittered by what had occurred because of it, like the panic in Paris and these kinds of mm -hmm. spectacles. But it was something that, that was more like a literary creation. And mm -hmm. today in academia, there's a lot of speculation that's comparing the Rosicrucian manifestos to science fiction. Mm -hmm. 
and to revolutionary literature as opposed to being some sort of a of a religious movement with initiated masters and all of that we don't have much indication that there was such a thing at the time but especially when freemasonry was getting going rosicrucianism was a big influence on the early masons and so you find rosicrucian degrees in freemasonic orders and and many rosicrucian ideas have been implemented into freemasonry and of course the masons came to america and our founding fathers were predominantly masons and so there again these these esoteric ideas from europe find a new home here right right and also you had mentioned previously the church of latter day saints yes. i know that that also incorporates a lot of masonic, masonic material in it yes yeah yeah it's all very very fascinating and i want to kind of move us on a little bit there's another person that you write about and i wanted to ask you a bit about her and this is francis wright and i mm -hmm. found her entirely fascinating and I want to read one of her books. I'm going to read the title here, Views of Society and Manners in America, a series of letters from that country to a friend in England during the years 1818, 1819, and 1820 by an English woman. And what really struck my attention is that that is almost contemporaneous with Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Mm -hmm. when, you know, he was traveling around. I mean, I think she preceded him by about yes. a decade. And when I was reading your book and I came across her, I'm like, oh, someone has to do a comparison. <laughs> someone has yes. to investigate the the two of them and what their observations are. Yes. Because I know that de Tocqueville was also writing at a time, you mentioned the frontier, you know, that's really when the frontier was expanding. And mm -hmm. The story that we normally get in textbooks is that this is the period of the Second Great Awakening uh, with all the tent revivals and whatnot. Yes. And Frances Wright, it seems like she was quite ahead of her time. So I was wondering she if was. you could speak about her and maybe the context of when she was writing as well. Sure. Well, she she's, she's a wonderful character, rather tragic. She began she tells us this, this great story about how she was a little girl and she heard about america she found in her in her grandfather's library some books that talked about america and what america was about and she instantly fell in love with america the whole idea of it how it came to be and she talks about how she frantically searched the various atlases in her grandfather's library looking for america fearing that it wouldn't be there anymore and feeling great relief when she saw that it still existed. And so she wanted to go see it for herself. And at a very young age with her sister, they, they had some independent wealth they had inherited. She traveled to America. This was a real honeymoon period for her and for America, because even on the boat that she took across the Atlantic, all the sailors were literate, they were very aware of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and able to discuss it. She was just so impressed. And her first trip to America, she was same thing, so impressed by the people who all seemed to be so idealistic and, and so interested in knowledge. And she described how even the men on the frontier were, were educated people who cared about the Constitution and cared about the American experiment and 
she met all sorts of people, Jefferson and made friends amongst very high ranking Americans and eventually was introduced to Lafayette. And so she starts out as being this, this apologist for America. Her first writings are so pro-America, reporting that this is something like Athens that's going on here. There, there's, this is a new approach to civilization. But then when she goes back the second time, it's not that long later, but it's long enough that what she meets is the next generation of Americans. They don't care about the Constitution at all. Mm. They are the most miserable bunch of greedy, never-do-wells that she's run into, and she's terribly disappointed. And then she runs into slavery in the South, and she cannot understand it, how this, this America that she has idealized could possibly allow slavery. And she considers it to be the greatest danger to the survival of the Republic. And so moved by this, she starts to give speeches and she becomes a very popular speaker. She was really the first woman in America to address large crowds. And in the beginning, she was, she was controversial, but very popular. And in fact, as she, as she became more popular and more involved in politics, her, her, her lectures would turn into these melees where people would, would be outside throwing rocks through the windows of churches where she was lecturing to try to stop her. And people inside would, would mass around her when they left the church in order to protect her from these people. And she was famous and controversial and many newspapers went against her and talked about what a, a real sin it was that this woman was getting up in front of people. They described her as very masculine. She was a very tall woman. Mm -hmm. and, and she got up there with all her mat with her big masculine arms, they said, reminding us of the kind of insults that Michelle Obama had to endure. Mm -hmm. And she didn't care. She just she kept trying to get this information out there. Now she also believed in in women should marry for love. They should be able to divorce, that 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 sexuality should be something that women should enjoy. That, that there should be birth control made available. And these were things that nobody talked about at the time, even a hundred years later or so, when you've got somebody like Randolph talking about these things, it's, it's, it was shocking then, but here's Frances Wright doing this so early. And eventually she used her connections to, to try to create a community where she wanted to, to teach enslaved people how to live outside slavery. It wasn't particularly enlightened. A lot of the idea was that they would return to Africa and, and America wasn't very hospitable to the idea of educating and liberating the slaves at that point. But she tried to do this. She got involved with, uh, with uh, Andy Jackson when he was president, uh, somebody that was giving her advice. And she unfortunately, took his advice and bought swamp land from a friend of his and tried to build this farm that would prove once and for all that enslaved people could be as intelligent, educated, and capable in every way as any other American. At first, the experiment went pretty well, but she became sick because of the swampy atmosphere there. Her sister became sick. The whole thing floundered. She didn't get much support from her connections. It turned into a, a terrible mess. And eventually 
in her later years, she had to disband it and she found a way to, to get lives for the people that she had promised this liberation to in Haiti. The president of Haiti was willing to help her resettle them. And then he actually rewarded her with gold coins for all the work that she had tried to accomplish. And then she was accused of selling these people to the president mm -hmm. of Haiti for gold. And, and her name was smeared. And during this process, she fell in love with someone, a philosopher of, of social justice, and they married. And it was an absolute disaster for her. She, she did not do well as a mother. She was living in France. Even though Lafayette adored her, she became such an isolated person that he didn't even know she was living there at one point. Mm. And, and the rest of her story is, is sad because when she tries to return to, to become a speaker again, at first she's met with curiosity and derision and remembered as this, this person I used to call the red harlot because mm. she had red hair. And, and then later, they don't, nobody shows up. She winds up talking to, to uh, people who came in out of the cold, a handful of people in some dump in a bad neighborhood, and it's extremely depressing for her. She's still so driven by her desire to save America's soul that she alienates her husband and her daughter, and that winds up being a whole other set of problems for her. So she's, she's such an example of disillusionment, somebody who who really fell in love with America and in a sense made America her religion. Hmm. And, and then as she discovers the truth about, about America and, and its shadow, if you will, then she, she, it just makes her all the more committed, but that battle slowly destroys her life. And it's, I, I sometimes I think that the, the whole, I've often wondered, well, you know, what will people ask me about the book? And Tamara, who you also interviewed, mm -hmm. Tamara Lucid, she once said to me, well, they may ask you, well, what is the message of the book? Mm -hmm. I gave it a lot of thought and I came up with one of the messages in the book is know when to stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That does seem to be a theme that runs through a lot of the stories that you tell. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask about Frances Wright just because she was at the forefront. And like you said, she was like a good hundred years before her time. Yes. But I also found her to be such a, an important part of the American story. Yes. And that, and this is one of the reasons that I really enjoyed your book is because even though I've got a background in the American religious tradition, there was just so much in there that I was unfamiliar with. So I was just greedily eating up this book. <laughs> oh, great. Um, it's just a treasure trove, I think. Now, she, you mentioned the experiment that she had started, the Neshoba experiment. Yes. I think that's what it was. But there's also this ongoing, or, well, I think even now, um, intentional creation of communities yes that you bring up as well so you have the neshoba experiment i think another famous one was oneida yes. i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right and there are some others and i was wondering if you could speak maybe a little bit to these communities because i see them the connections with like the communes of the yes. 60s and now we're just i think referring to them as intentional communities yes and now you've got you know, also have the spiritualist camps and, mm -hmm. and spiritualist towns some of which still exist like lilydale mm -hmm. i think it's partly 
again, the the desire to get away from whatever the prevailing conformist order is and to find a flock of like-minded people and go get a fresh start somewhere. And so one of the influences on Francis Wright, briefly, was a movement that they they first the, the people who first came here would would build these towns that like harmony. And this was an extraordinary group of people who would not only build a town, but would furnish the town with whatever its businesses would be. And they would they would raise it up to where it was flourishing and then they would sell it. And then they would go do another one. And so for Francis, as a side note, that was bad timing because she arrived at Harmony right when it was was really flourishing. And unfortunately, once it was purchased, the people who took it over did not have the same beliefs or practices as the ones who built it. And it turned into an absolute mess. It, it reminds me of stories that John Trudell told me about what it was like during the Alcatraz occupation and for the AIM movement, the American Indian movement. And it was a similar kind of debacle that occurred. A bunch of anarchists and free thinkers got together and no one could decide about anything. Mm. And so she didn't see that part of it. She saw when it was running beautifully, when it was still under the influence of the people who had created it. And so I think that this, this propensity for creating new colonies is, is, is deeply in, in the American tradition and the desire to be among like-minded people and to practice as we wish is a driving force behind these communities. But so is, is, is the desire to have prosperity and, and safety in ways that it may not have been available in the places where many of these people came from. And because of the, the vastness of the country at that time, and because of the amazing natural resources available, it was possible to do that. If, if, you, if you could work together as a community and you had the right kind of leadership, you could just strike out and, and do something like that. Now, as it evolves over time, later you wind up with, oh, for instance, Rosicrucian communities, communities in Los Angeles that were built or in, in Southern California or even all through California, where the leader of the community had a vision or a dream and he was shown a piece of property and then they drove around looking for the property and then they found it and it was for sale lo and behold and so they bought it and they knew what they were going to build on it and some of these things flourished for a time and then disappeared and others are still there and of course having a hard time with covid and that that's a whole nother thing between the the laws in california that require many of these places to upgrade their buildings to code and then the problem of COVID, it's hard to tell how many of these organizations will survive. Mm. And so I have I have heard from people who are involved in in various organizations at that grassroots level that there's a lot of concern that that those movements could could die out because the internet has replaced the need for them. But on the other hand, having experienced my time with Manley Hall at the Philosophical Research Society, I can say that that there's nothing can really replace a community of people that you're you're interacting with on a daily basis somewhere, right. and where the physical objects are all available to you, and and you can you can, there's kind of a, a a different sense of community that occurs from online, and online has other advantages such as being able to reach people in other countries. 
and and being able to bring everybody into a room and they can see each other and they can show each other things and certainly it, it it addresses many of the benefits that were there with those kind of communities but those communities i think are under a challenge now but i still think there will be some form of this it's mm. it's a real american preoccupation this idea of creating a better way of life mm -hmm. now many people have done that to further their own ends of course right. Right. Yeah. I always try to remember, even with the people I disagree with politically, that everyone wants a better world. We just differ, I think, often in how that better world looks and how we get there. But I think everyone wants that better world and everyone wants happiness, like you said at the very beginning. You know, uh, mm -hmm. that's, I think, the core idea of the United States, you know, is the pursuit of, you know, life, liberty, and happiness. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned spiritualism, and I wanted to ask about this. And again, one of the things I found really interesting is that you had noted that in 1860, a year before the Civil War, only 25% of Americans listed themselves as Christians. And again, that squares with the information I read years ago as well. But you also know that 10% described themselves as spiritualists. Mm-hmm. And I think that this spiritualist movement, even though it was kind of short-lived, mm -hmm. continued to have repercussions uh, yes. in, in America. Um, and what I found interesting was how many of them were connected to the abolitionist movement yes. and the early feminist movement yes. as well. So um, for anyone who's listening and they're not entirely sure what spiritualism is... I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what it is, a little bit of the history of it, I suppose, and the connections it had to abolitionism and the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. It goes way back in America. The, the Shakers and Quakers who were here in the earliest times of the colonies were interested in communication with the dead. And there are reports, for example, of Shaker girls hearing music in the heavens and then passing out into trance and then channeling information possibly from former members of the community who passed on but it wasn't really a well-known activity it was also going on in england in the same communities at that time in fact some of the quakers were even trying to raise the dead because they were raising the dead in the bible so shouldn't we be able to do that too and the spiritualism movement really got started with the fox sisters a couple of sisters who had phenomenon going on around them and they were rural they weren't particularly well educated it was Knox, and the Knox would answer questions and the neighbors got really fascinated and would come over and ask questions and then it spread to the other towns and pretty soon there were there were reporters coming over and then there were other mediums doing the same thing and madame blavatsky was here writing about it and it became this big deal now for women this was an extraordinarily liberating time because women who had been so suppressed, who had, had been told that they should be quiet and do what they were told to do, and certainly were not allowed to vent their opinions in front of, of groups of men, were now selling out auditoriums and, and preaching to men about what they were doing wrong or what they should be doing, and men were eagerly listening and supporting them in many cases. That was a, a revolution in itself. And 
the fact you have somebody like Victoria Woodhull, who starts out as an abused child being dragged around the country by her father, who discovers that, that it, her and her sister had somewhat of psychic ability. And so they, he starts to think, well, this is a great scam. I'll sell my snake oil and they can do their psychic stuff. But Victoria realizes that there's something legitimate going on here. She gets away from her father and practices as, an, as a medium with such success that she attracts the attention of J.P. Morgan. And, and he puts her into business as the first female stockbroker on Wall Street. But her ambitions go beyond that. She starts a newspaper, a muckraking kind of newspaper. And she also runs for president as the first female candidate for president. And she, she put Frederick Douglass in as her vice president candidate without asking his permission. <laughs> and it was never a legitimate candidacy because she was actually too young to be president. And it was, the whole thing was considered outrageous even by the feminists of the time. But it shows you this, 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 the way that, that power came from mediumship for these women. And eventually, a lot of frauds, it became a criminal enterprise in a big way. It, people saw that it was an easy way to make money and it was, they could pool information about people. And, and then the Fox sisters, one of them came out and said it was a fraud and then gave a sort of strange explanation of how they did it that doesn't really make sense considering what mm -hmm. the reports about what were happening. It, it, yeah, it doesn't really make sense, but the Christians were delighted to have have a Fox sister saying this was not real, we were fake. But then she came out again and said, the only reason I did that was I needed help and the Christians made me do it to get help, but actually it wasn't fake. Mm. So who knows what she really thought? We don't even know really. And, but the idea that it was a fraud spread everywhere, but it still lasted so long that Houdini was out there trying to prove that mediumship was fraudulent. And I write about his, his run-in with the Witch of Lime Street, mm. which is sort of a tragic story of a woman who married somebody who, who put her out there to be a medium, but there was a, a, almost an element of at least peep show, if not prostitution in her mm. work. Like many mediums, she would wear see-through or, or, or just very minimal clothing. And the idea was, well, this is so you can see that that I'm not doing anything secretly. I don't have anything on me, but men would pay just to sit there with an attractive woman who was almost naked. And, and Houdini went after her and there's this kind of seedy, sweaty story about how he, he built this box and he, he put her in the box and tried to, to make her do her mediumship under these controlled conditions that he had his, his right knee pressed up against the inside of her thigh and just really weird stuff. And, and he, she was fraudulent, but he actually committed fraud trying to prove she was fraudulent, mm. which made the whole thing just a cesspool of, of human dysfunction. But spiritualism, it never really went away. It, it wasn't the big popular movement. Uh, Houdini did do a lot, and so did other researchers who uncovered lots of frauds. And there were also criminal cases that came up, and there were even mediums who revealed that they were part of an organized crime circuit. As in any profession, it's very hard to find people who are sincere and really good at what they do. There's a lot of people who are technically proficient and aren't the best people. And there's a whole lot of people who don't know what they're doing or are absolutely fraudulent. And that can be doctors and lawyers and anything really. And it was the same with spiritualism. Good mediums were really something, 
but there were way more bad ones. And so mediumship continued, it evolved in different ways. And in that sense, spiritualism evolved in different ways. So for instance, we find that around the time of World War I, there are a couple who are successful corporate business people, very upstanding people who experiment with a Ouija board and, and contact spirits. And they're so blown away by the information they receive that they write a book called Our Unseen Guest. And this book is a huge bestseller around the time of World War I, and it talks about what the experiences were of the soldiers as they crossed over, and it actually predicted World War II at a time when no one believed that such a thing would be possible because this was the war to end all wars, World War I. And then there was an, another level of it with Edgar Casey and the ARE organization, and and this brought about really a huge influence on what became the new age and on holistic medicine and and casey kind of had a different approach in the way that they they preserved all of his readings and indexed them and correlated and developed this organization around it and products that could be sold some of which are really wonderful by the way like their mm. rose water mm. and and then you have something like some people i write about Stuart. Edward White and his wife, Betty, the other Betty White, as I sometimes call her. <laughs> and they were hugely famous just before World War II and during World War II. He was a very famous writer of frontier and adventure stories, and they wound up exploring this other frontier. Their, their book is, books are about what's called the unobstructed universe. And this was very different kind of mediumship. This was not about talking to your dead relatives or giving you health advice. This was trying to understand exactly what the other side is, how we experience it, how it relates to this side. And some of the theories were that they called this the obstructed universe. And they say that when we when we leave here and we just come here, according to them, to do our experiments, to to learn, to to try stuff out. And then when we're, we find what we need, we get out and we go back to the unobstructed where we're free to be ourselves. And so the way that, that most human beings have this sense of, I'm not my body, you know, it's anything from the way many human beings will be like, wait a minute, was this thing on me before over here? Or is there one over here on this side? And, or the way that, that, I remember I once talked to my father who was an atheist and I was trying to explain this stuff to him. He just didn't have any desire to believe in it. And the only way I ever got through to him was once when he was elderly, I said to him, when you look in the mirror, are you surprised to see that you're old? Do you still feel the same inside? And he said, yes. Hmm. And I said, yes, because you're not your body. Well, he wasn't so sure about that, but <laughs> This was the kind of teaching that the whites were putting out there. And it's an amazing story because they thought that this was just an effort from what they call the invisibles from the unobstructed universe to to teach more about this crossing over at a time when world war ii was about to get started but then betty died and she came back in such a dramatic fashion that who's who refused to give her a death date mm. and carl jung in a letter to one of his friends said that he thought that Betty was actually an example of a spirit surviving death and not just an archetype. Hmm. 
but they're almost unknown now. They, they right. have been completely forgotten. And their ideas are very interesting. I'm actually working right now on a book just to, to be able to give their life story and their, the gist of their beliefs to people. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. And and I know that there's still this idea, the the mediums and also channeling. Yes. Uh, you had mentioned like Jane Roberts and the Seth material. Mm -hmm. And I always enjoyed the Seth books. And I found that there was wisdom in them. Yes. Um, and you also mentioned Jay-Z Knight and Ramtha. Yes. Not a huge fan of hers. <laughs> right. But um uh, it's still there. And I know that people have started doing research into mediums as well. I think the Woodbridge yes. Institute, for example, has been doing a lot of this. But one of the things, and you give a lot of other examples within the spiritualist movement of some of the incredible sort of manifestations that occur. Mm -hmm. But like you pointed out, there's a lot of fraud. And it yes. always seemed to me that there's a trickster element to spiritualism and yes. the mediums that, you know, we get something that it's like, wow, I have to believe this, but then you get the fraud. <laughs> yes. And sometimes the same person. Yeah. That's yeah. the interesting thing. And so I, I write about this fellow who was an expert in ancient Chinese dialect mm. and he was not a believer and he was tricked into going to a seance. And the reason that they tricked him into it was because there was a, one of the spirits coming through this medium was speaking in Chinese. And when the, this Chinese started, this professor, he didn't he didn't get it. He said it, it was definitely Chinese, but he couldn't really understand it at first. It seemed archaic. And then it suddenly occurred to him that he was listening to pure Confucian Chinese the most elegant Chinese he'd ever heard. And now he could understand what was being said. And so he asked the spirit some questions about the works of Confucius and was shocked when resolutions were given to conflicts that scholars had never been able to resolve. And he said, he actually wrote a little book about it because he was so tired of telling the story and he just wanted posterity to know about this weird thing that happened. He couldn't explain it. And he said that there were perhaps five people in the whole world who could understand that dialect and this ignorant medium, there was just no way that, that they could have understood it. Or then you get an example like Willy Reichel, who was a German interested in esotericism, who traveled all through America and lived for a time in Southern California. And he had the most spectacular ectoplasmic experiences and really inexplicable things. Like one of them was a friend of his who had died and who appeared speaking the right dialect of German, knew details about their lives that they had experienced together, and was even dressed in the right uniform of the era when he served. Mm. And he, how did this, how, what was this? There was almost no imaginable way for anyone to know these things and to pre-prepare for him so that, that they could do the show. But then what were, you know, is this actual ectoplasmic manifestation by spirit? And if so, what happened to these ectoplasmic manifestations? There's still some slight experimentation with it, but there was a time when almost every block had somebody that was getting tables to turn and, and getting ectoplasmic stuff going on in the room. So was this a mass hysteria? Was this some kind of an experiment? One of the interesting things is that as you see mediumship developing, especially in the less famous arenas of it, 
I, I, for example, knew a, a tremendous medium that I met through the Philosophical Research Society, whose name was Edward A. Monroe. He was a half Cherokee former police sergeant in the mechanic pool at the LAPD. And when he retired, he really didn't have much to do with his life and he prayed to be made use of. And he wound up having this, this mediumship experience that completely changed his life. And he would tour mostly the Southwest. He became known amongst a small group of people as the seer of the Sun Belt. He had a lot of like Christian retirees and but the the alleged spirit speaking through him was very educated and, and articulate and talked. We actually it was one of the people that I talked to in the early days about the idea of American metaphysical religion, because this whatever this entity was shared such fascination about it and had a lot of interesting perspectives. And this this was one of the things that I learned was or was told was that they weren't doing the ectoplasmic stuff and the old fashioned mediumship experiments anymore because they didn't like the results. <laughs> and that, that Edward A. Monroe would not be famous during his lifetime because this was a different kind of experiment. They wanted to see how the effect on individuals of a high quality channeling situation would play out over time. And that's such a fascinating, so in other words, there's an experiment being run from the other side <laughs> about how to, how to deal with this so we can, we can get these ideas out to people, but not create such room for fraud and, mm. and for misunderstandings. So I found that fascinating, the idea that yeah. spiritualism is actually evolving from the other side. Yeah. And then going yeah. back to the idea of spiritualism and feminism, the it is interesting to note how most of the the female mediums have channeled males hmm. so you mentioned jay-z and and she, you know her claim to fame is romptha and i talk about how this woman is ran or is running a very successful organization she's a formidable woman but it's all about romptha mm -hmm. And that's one of the, to me, kind of bittersweet aspects of the power that was gained through mediumship was how many times that that turned out to to have to come in the form of a male spirit. So, for instance, when Victoria Woodhull became one of the first women to address Congress, I think Francis Wright beat her to it. She claimed that that the spirit guiding her through this very eloquent speech was Demosthenes the great Athenian orator. Wow. And so this, this usage of male personas from history, another really interesting thing, one last thing about spiritualism is the way that, that while women were seeking power through this and also using whatever power they gained to try to end slavery in America, you also had the use of indigenous characters and names and 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 people as spirit guides very often indigenous people were the the, the gatekeepers for these mediums and i found that fascinating because usually the names were weird they, you know, it, it was very corny stuff but but the fact that when they were reaching out for this power through these manifestations coming out of the unconscious that that part of what was bringing it to them were indigenous people. So they were kind of blindly reaching toward indigenous liberation and indigenous spirituality. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I, I know that we are 
running out of time. Can I keep you just for a few more minutes? Yes. Uh, good, good. Because I had a couple other questions, but since you mentioned the, the indigenous aspect, and you do discuss this a bit in the book, but it's this question of cultural appropriation in the American yes. metaphysical religion, be it from the indigenous, be it from India, various other places. Yeah. Is it though, is cultural appropriation, I, I, I would imagine that sometimes that's the correct way to look at it, but yes. do you think it's always a negative thing or is there an element of just basic syncretism that's at well, play? Yes. There is certainly syncretism as part of it. And I would also say, isn't Christianity ultimately also cultural appropriation? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, all religion to a degree, unless you were, if, unless you're, I guess you're Jewish and you're living in Israel, maybe, I right, don't know, right, even right. there, it's, it's, it's questionable. Mm. And so I, one of the things that, that, that I thought a very wise thing that I heard about cultural appropriation came from a, a kind of study, informal study that, that Tamara and I did about this phenomenon of the reemergence of the ancient Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, hmm. which has become this real phenomenon. And there's even academic papers being written about how, because of it, some museums are, are sort of being changed into sacred spaces where people come to worship at these statues of this, this lion-headed goddess. Hmm. And who, who appeared, by the way, amongst many of the people that we interviewed, always seemed to come first in a dream hmm. to people who'd never heard of or seen or known anything about it. And so what I found fascinating about it was that that so the question of cultural appropriation is huge there this is an ancient egyptian goddess and so there are occultists who have have expressed their concern that especially if if, if someone believes in egregores right and the idea that 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 groups of people can create living thought forms that then manipulate them and others well, they're quite frightened by the idea of a bunch of what they think are ignorant people reawakening the egregore of an Egyptian goddess <laughs> who was known for her vengeance against the unjust. And so they tend to dismiss this as, as, as very ill-considered mm. and, and the worst kind of cultural appropriation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I spoke to someone who, or we spoke to someone <clears throat> excuse me, who is, I would say, probably the number one icon maker of Egyptian deities in the world today. Tomasu is his name. He has a, a website called Icons of Kemet. The art is gorgeous. If you like Egyptian stuff, check this guy's art out. It's just amazing. And he actually creates icons for small temples. And and there is this movement of people who are embracing Egyptian spirituality, not just Sekhmet. And so when asked about cultural appropriation, his response was the gods choose whom they will. Mm. And you cannot put limits on what the gods do. As a human being, you may not like that they call somebody outside your racial group, but the God does not have that limitation. Mm. I found that as a, a very interesting viewpoint on it. Yeah. And, and so, yes, if, if somebody is, I mean, personally, I find it offensive when somebody thinks it's sexy to wear, you know, short shorts and a, and a war bonnet to a concert. Mm. 
given the history of America and what I know about about Lakota culture and what what's going on there now and what happened at Standing Rock, it's it's in the it's the you almost want to say it's just bad taste. Right. It's beyond cultural appropriation. It shows a lack of mindfulness or a lack of awareness about about the world. And and then, of course, you have the, the spectacle of people who set themselves up as teachers of traditions mm-hmm. that they are not from. Right. And so sometimes they're good teachers and they, they do respect aspects of it. Sometimes they're not good teachers and what they come up with has nothing to do with the original teachings of the culture they're appropriating. And one of the people that that raises a lot of questions in this way is is Castaneda. Mm, Yeah, because as 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 anthropology developed and we discovered that what he was calling Yaki beliefs were not Yaki beliefs. And so is he a fraud? Was he an ersatz shaman and and you know, is this all nonsense? Well, many people have benefited and found great wisdom in his writing. Now, I know there's a new biography of, of him coming out called American right. Trickster very soon that I'm super eager to read. It's it's been an, it's a long process of scholarship for the author, and and he is apparently going to reveal Costaneda at a level that Costaneda has never been revealed mm. at, and he he does consider him a cult leader. But what do we make of that? And so we come back to your your idea of the trickster, and especially in America, I think that the trickster tradition in spirituality is very strong. Yeah. And then yeah. Th- what what do you do with you know what do you do with a trickster and and cultural appropriation? You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always interesting to think about the cultural appropriation issues. And like you said, you know, someone wearing short shorts and a war bonnet to a concert is bad taste. And I'm always concerned with, you know, people who claim to be shamans but have no real traditional grounding in it. Yes. But I also know that, for example, you know, the person who started, I guess, what would be referred to as like the neo-shaman movement, Michael Harner, he ended up taking it, working with the Sami, I believe, because they had lost a lot of their traditions and yes. they worked with him to kind of reclaim it. And yes. so when I look at, you know, neo-shamanism, I have to keep that in mind and say, well, where's, you know, how much, you know, how do we draw the lines of that cultural appropriation? Yeah. You know, well, I think we could go back to John Winthrop the Younger for a moment and say, here's a, an Englishman who appropriates Rosicrucian German, basically, mm-hmm. ideas, and then comes to America and is governor of the colony of Connecticut, becomes this famous alchemical doctor who is putting Rosicrucian ideals into practice. So is that cultural appropriation or is he a Rosicrucian even more so perhaps than people who claim to be, but didn't do anything that reflected Rosicrucian beliefs? Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's very, very complicated. So uh, at the end here, I wanted to bring us to California because I think both of us are in California Yeah, and California has this reputation of, especially with new age. And I find, I personally have found that not 
quite true. When I first moved here 18 years ago, I thought that I wouldn't be able to throw a stick without hitting a new age or metaphysical bookstore. And I was surprised to learn that, you know, that just not is not the not the case. But it is central to especially in the 20th century, I think, this uh American metaphysical religion that you've excavated. And so I, I, I wanted to, two things, one, ask you to comment about the role of California in the American metaphysical religion. And then I also wanted to do the same thing I did when Tamara was a guest on the show, is take a few moments to commemorate the Bodhi Tree Bookstore. Yes. Oh, <laughs> gladly. So California... It goes way back as a place where there was some sense of something was going to happen. You've got Blavatsky saying that the next root race was going to come out of California. Or the next big religious movement was going to come out of California. You've got Manly Hall moving here and when the sidewalks were still wooden mm -hmm. and with his with his mother and and getting involved with the Church of Light and establishing the Philosophical Research Society. You've got all numbers of, of, of organizations, Rosicrucian and otherwise, who created communities and community centers. And many of these were small storefronts, like, for instance, Corinne Helene, she worked out of a, a, a very small organization in Santa Monica. And most of these, in my experience in the 80s when I worked for Manley Hall, was I, I, I was his interface with some of, of these communities was that it was so so wholesome on a level in, in a very quaint kind of way it was so paper plates and and cupcakes and mm -hmm. and let's talk about father crc it's funny to me to i know that the, the history of masons being illuminati and being behind all the terrible things that happened has been a long tradition in our world but the Masons that I met when I worked for Manly Hall were all such lovely people and they, they had enough trouble just keeping their own stuff running and it was all just wholesome to me. Mm -hmm. And so that certainly changed. Uh, and part of it, I think its own success kind of killed it. And so you have the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, which shows up as kind of the crowning achievement of, of this California predilection for these kinds of ideas. And it's started by a couple of rocket scientists, real rocket scientists who've been working on, on weapons of mass destruction and who in the 1960s and early 70s had decided they didn't want to live their lives that way. And they were frustrated because the books that they wanted to read were so unavailable. So they opened up this, they, they basically bought a small house that was on Melrose Avenue at a time when Melrose was just lumber yards and really not much of anything. And they started to carry the books that they and their friends wanted to read. I, I first went there not too long after they, they established it. And it was one of my very first dates with Tamara, actually, <laughs> after I'd, she'd asked me to protect her in this situation. And then we started to see each other. And then I took her to the Bodhi Tree. So I was trying to find books by Rimbaud and Patti Smith. And and that, those were not available at the time in regular bookstores. Even Baudelaire was hard to find. And I could find those books there. So it was like, a for me, it was a punk bookstore, even though <laughs> it was really the spiritual place run by hippies. And then eventually they opened up what they called the used branch in another small house. And that, that place 
really became the home of so many libraries that were born at the origin of so many libraries, including my own. Mm -hmm. If they liked you, and, and particularly when I started working for Manly Hall, who they loved, they would call me and say, we just got a, a, an amazing box of books, come down here. And you'd come down there and they were really reasonably priced, unlike other specialized bookstores. And many people talked about the kinds of synchronicities that occurred at the Bodhi Tree, including, I believe, Shirley MacLaine. Mm. People always said books fell into their hands or I always found the most amazing gifts there, never failed to find something incredible. And you could also meet amazing people. My understanding of Zen Buddhism really came from a Zen teacher who who hung out in the Buddhist section of the Bodhi Tree bookstore whenever he felt like it and had students who would would come and, and meet him there. And he never made appointments. You'd have to just run into him. And he taught me. I was really at the time deeply into Tibetan Buddhism and I was really exploring the drops, which are essentially the Bindu points and other technical aspects of it. And I was wanted to ask him about that. And he was so frustrated with me. He was like, he kept saying things like, what are the drops when there is no <laughs> mind, you know, and all this good Zen stuff. And one day it actually woke me up mm. and I had, I had my first Zen experience and to be able to have that from a stranger at a bookstore, I don't think I ever knew his name. Mm. That's the kind of place Bodhi Tree was. Yeah. And it became so successful that they were making millions of dollars and the place was packed all the time, it was open sometimes late into the night and just a, a wonderful place for getting gifts. And, and it really became the, the, the hub for so many craftspeople who were associated with making sacred art or crystal jewelry or just any of the things that became associated with the new age many uh, uncountable number of lives were changed there and when i wrote the book one of the the delights for me was the a great author on the esoteric gary lackman mm. who was once the bass player for the band blondie was actually a manager at the bodhi tree bookstore for a time and so he was willing to share some of his reminiscences about it for the book and i i ran into a number of people who who and they always would get this sort of dreamy smile Oh, the Bodhi tree. Yeah. And eventually what happened to it was gentrification, the the rent and the the property value soared, the property tax soared in the area. And and then Amazon really was the killer because people would go to the Bodhi tree to find a book and then buy it cheaper from Amazon. Yeah. And so they they could not keep the the business going, which was a terrible shame because it was such a wonderful place to to meet and to discover new things and and eventually it, it just closed down they were going to try to reopen it somewhere else under a new owner but as far as i know it never occurred and the whole phenomenon of metaphysical bookstores which was probably reached their peak in the 80s and 90s and now are dying out somewhat i think that's a real pity and i always try to encourage people when they ask me where to buy the book to either buy it directly from the publisher or to buy it from a local metaphysical bookstore. Right. Ask them to order it for you if you can and and give them your patronage because those places are so invaluable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And when I first moved to Los Angeles, I live right at Wilshire and Fairfax. Mm -hmm. And I like to walk. I'm an aberration in Southern California. So I would yes. walk. And that's how I discovered the Bodhi Tree bookstore. And what I told Tamara, when she was a guest on the show, is that I was just floored when I walked in 
because especially books on Buddhism and the Indian religious traditions, they had books there that you could not find anywhere else. I have spent time in Nepal and there's an amazing bookstore chain there called Pilgrim's Bookstore. And there, there were books at the Bodhi tree that I had seen at Pilgrim's. And so it was a place close to my heart. And I know some of my personal library came from the Bodhi tree too. And I was just brokenhearted when, when it closed. I'll tell you just briefly, it was, when it was closing, it was, it's very, it was very sad. I'm sure you experienced it to go in there and you saw that it was, it had less and less. It was like Mm -hmm. visiting an elderly relative in hospice or something. And every time there's less of them there and it made it kind of brutal to visit and Right before it closed, I went in there. I wanted to buy one last gift for Tamara mm-hmm. because we I bought her so many gifts there over the years. And the place had been picked clean. Wow. And yet there was this beautiful print of green Tara on the wall. And I guess it had been mistaken as one of the guru portraits, which were not for sale. Right. And so I, I asked somebody, is this is this available and they sold it to me at an incredibly low price as sort of a present and and so that was my last gift for Tamara from the Bodhi tree whenever I think about it I just smile and think about the Bodhi tree I wonder where that huge stained glass (laughs) yantra went you know yeah 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 well I love the line that you wrote in the book you said this time the library of Alexandria didn't burn it succumbed to gentrification the economy of scale and the search engine yeah yeah. So my, my final question for you, yes. actually I have one right after this, but okay. um, you also noted that the business of spirituality is worth billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is one of the enduring criticisms of the new age movement. And I see the new age as being a manifestation of this American metaphysical religion. Mm-hmm. And I was curious your thoughts on the American metaphysical religion as a form of a uh, kind of how it's manifested in the new age, but as something that is bought, something that is consumed. Right. Yes. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? But I mean, it's, of course it's true of almost every religion. I mean, every religion is trying to sell you doodads and books and, and all sorts of little things that help you along on your path or remind you of what you need to know. So I don't think it's entirely, although certainly the new age, <clears throat> excuse me, seems to have specialized in that in a, to a yeah. great degree. And, and certainly that goes with the whole idea that, that of the prosperity gospel in its various forms. And why shouldn't I make a lot of money from, from my spirituality? Now, in writing this book and also in my own experiences, it's problematic. And you know, I think my book shows how business distorts religion and you do see how how ambitions wind up warping the original intentions of many people that's why i say no when to stop because so many times we see people who stumble into this amazing experience and they do a lot of good for others but they want to keep it going and make it bigger and mm-hmm. and give themselves more power and then they ruin it and so I think that many of these people who created businesses out of it were trying to walk, for want of a better word, let's call it a Taoist path in it. So I love crystals. 
I, I'm crystal aware, so I'm going to make crystal jewelry, and now I'm going to promote my crystal jewelry, and and that's fine. That's part of my spiritual path now. Well, that's always a tricky business because the business side of it has its own demands, and it it definitely impacts. And so, I saw so many people in writing this book who you you could see that the the pressure the need to make money, the fear of running out of money, driving bad decisions, or even changing doctrine in ways that were more likely to, to create the, the wealth that people were wanting. And I even experienced it to some degree when I was Manley Hall's designated substitute lecturer, because what I found, just as he had found, was that whereas I wanted to talk about really <laughs> esoteric ideas, I wanted to dig deeply into the Neoplatonists, for example, that my audience really didn't, and his audience really didn't want very much of that. They wanted a little of it, but they wanted to learn how to live better lives. Mm. They wanted the ancient knowledge to be applied in ways that would help them to improve their well-being or to help them solve the common problems of life. And so I found myself being pressured, in a sense, by my audience and by the people who were booking me at PRS who wanted me to have bigger and bigger audiences, and I was a good draw for them, that that I should be talking about things that were more palatable to, to what people really desired. And I think it change, it, it really changes the approach. Now, you can see it in Manley Hall's work where in the early lectures, he's he gets a lot into the occult, but he's also very willing to go into great depth into highly intellectual subjects. For instance, he was one of the first Americans or first people in English to write about Shingon Buddhism. Hmm. But that was never the popular side of his work. The popular side to this day is more stuff about how to live a better life and and how to deal with the the problems and challenges that everyone faces in life and his specialty really was to apply the this ancient wisdom that he had studied all his life to practical modern day problems and but that changes the nature of of what he's teaching and what and what's possible there and so i'm sure he would say well for those who have that thirst that stuff's there you know i found it i found his early work i found it in the library books that he had written that were were much more difficult than his later work and and so i think he felt that that for those few people who desired that deeper experience that that he was already providing a way to that but for most people the real issue was how do i make my life livable and so the New Age movement, I think, had a lot of that about it. It was people rejecting what had come before. It was it was people who had been turned on by a hippie or by one of the other movements, the beat movement even, and and who wanted some kind of a community and a path. And prosperity was a big part of that. So why not become rich? Why not figure out a great business idea? But it's very rare to find examples of people who do that who are able to continue their work in an unalloyed fashion, where you don't see these distortions appearing in the narrative due to these decisions. And I think one of the things, for example, that made Stuart Edward White and Betty White such a fascinating case 
is that they were wealthy enough that they didn't do any of this out of a need for money. They were completely exploring this because that's what they wanted to do. And they didn't have any of that pressure. And I think that that made their teaching in some sense, it's very pure. You do not feel from it that pressure to, to please the customer, if you will. Now, the New Age movement, we could, we could really go into that. I mean, it was a big dating pool too, wasn't it? You couldn't walk into the Bodhi tree if you were a girl without getting hit on. And so part of that was also a, a, a social mm. climate. And when women were, I think, given a certain a higher level, you had teachers like Lynn Andrews and others who became quite dominant around that time. And that was also something that was fairly new. So it, it was really a complex thing and, and people like to dismiss it as kind of goofy and it's just your aunt with her crystals coming over and she looks like Steven Tyler. But I think that there was really more to it than that. Mm -hmm. And I do like, I don't think it's in, in very accurate and somebody who, who's got a book coming out about Orphism that I wrote with Tamara in August, I think I can say that that it's not really, it's not really California Orphism as such, right, although I know right. why I use the term. But if it is a, a like Orphism, it's, it was a, an alternative esoteric approach that was, was like a, a really a counterculture, if anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I, I, you know, I have dozens of other questions I can ask you, but I know that we've gone on for quite a while and I don't want to bore you. Well, I'm happy um, to come back. I mean, okay. I, I figured most people probably weren't, aren't going to make make it for two hour listens, <laughs> although, uh, although sometimes yeah. they do. But yeah. if you, if you, if you'd like to discuss further at another time, just let me know. I'm always happy okay. to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. I very well may take you up on that Okay, uh, because I've thoroughly enjoyed this. And just so that the listeners know that even though we've gone on for almost two hours, we've just covered a little bit that's in the book. It's a, it's an amazing book and well worth reading. And Thank you. so, um, the final questions I have for you, uh, these yes. should be quick answers. I, I knew that you and Tamara have a book coming out, a new translation of the Orphic Hymns. Yes. And that's coming out in August? Yes. Okay, perfect. And hopefully uh, we can speak then as well. Yes. I love the Orphic Hymns. Right. And you just finished a book on Rosicrucianism? Yes, on okay. Rosicrucianism, really Rosicrucian origins and context, because there's been so much new scholarship that the the narrative that Francis Yates kind of midwived has, yeah. has changed quite a bit. Okay. All right. And then you're also working on a book uh, about Stuart Edward White and his wife, Betty. Yes. Not the golden yeah, girl, that's Betty. the next one. <laughs> okay. I hope to be done with that in the next couple of months. All right. So that's a lot. Is there anything else that you're working on that or have coming up any like lectures or anything like that? I will be doing... A lecture, there's a lecture I did for the European Theosophical Society coming out about Alexander Wilder, who's a whole nother conversation and at the whole the Platonist and the amazing influence of Plato in the late 19th century in America, yeah. also on spiritualism, by the way. And, and so I find that fascinating. And, and so that's something that we'll certainly be be exploring. And then we've got, we have more books that we're, we know we're going to be working on. I think her book will probably take precedence as we go into a kind of an editorial thing. She's working on, on sort of the second volume of her memoir. Mm. And, and then we've got, we have some sort of projects we're not really ready to talk about yet that we'll, we'll be going with, but this lecture 
about Alexander Wilder should be out, I think, any day. I did that a while back. And then there may be some stuff for the American Theosophical Society. We're trying to find a, a program of topics that, that they're, they're okay with. And, and then I will be doing a lecture about the emergence of Sekhmet for the last Tuesday Society. Hmm. And that will be in May. Okay. Is there, do you have a website or a place that people can go to find out like upcoming events or more about you? Know, you know, not really. We're, we're, we're okay. terrible at promotion, really. <laughs> we're just not, we're so not motivated to be a brand right. in any way. Right, right. So we would, we, usually what I tell people is just Google our names, Google right. Ronnie Pontiac or Tamara Lucid, and you will find a bunch of stuff. You'll find films that we've worked on. And I don't know, I don't know if you heard that, that she associate, I think you know that she associate produced The Women of Standing Rock. Right, right. End right. of the line, The Women of Standing Rock yeah. film, which was nominated for an Emmy last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had reached out to the director and then I forget what happened. I, I'm going to take the blame. I think I dropped the ball on that, but I was going to have her on the show. She's um, a wonderful woman, amazing yeah. woman. And yeah. she does much more than that. She's yeah. she's really she has this incredible archive of interviews with with last interviews with indigenous elders. Mm. Yeah, I need to pick that ball back up. I think so. She's doing some work right now in Navajo country, working on okay. her next documentary. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, I, I will definitely do that. So, Ronnie, thank you so much for your time. I have- oh, thank you thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, I could go on for a lot more time. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a really lot of fun. questions. So, all okay, right. Well, so, let's do it again. Okay. Yes. Let's do that. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 75 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching. If you're part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work, please consider becoming a patron. I spend a lot of time on each podcast episode and have plans for growing the YouTube channel, but I can't really do that without some additional financial support. Right now, this is all a labor of love, and I hope that if you find any value in it at all, you can help me in continuing this work. Uh, There are currently four levels of membership uh, in the Patreon, uh, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, uh, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, uh, monthly uh, book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for what I've been calling a cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. I'm going to have an open one, the very first one on April 8th, Saturday, April 8th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be tremendously grateful for any support you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. Share it on social media. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. As I've mentioned a few times now, I often kid that I'm here in the Southland doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with a sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I hope you do, please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, 
please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. It only takes a moment and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a moment to spare, please consider writing a short but positive review. And please subscribe. And thank you, seriously, thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart to everybody who's already subscribed. And for those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.